So if you would turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 27. We're going into the Old Testament tonight for a little while. Not going to stay there the whole night, I don't think, but but um, in fact, we'll, I know we won't, we'll get into the New Testament very quickly here, but um, we are going to begin in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27, and we're going to read verses 30 through 32. Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 32, says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. I would say it's holy. It's holy unto the Lord. And if a man will it all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And uh, don't plan to say a lot more about this, but I do like to point out, I used to hear people say that meant 5%. That's not what a fifth is. A fifth is not 5%. One fifth is 20%. That's steep interest God charges. Ah, <laughs> uh, but that's what it says. Verse 32, And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall be holy unto the Lord. Amen. I want to take some time tonight, and I don't know if I'll finish it all in one lesson. I may have to break it into two parts, but I do feel like it is important that I deal with this subject. I have always been extremely reticent when it comes to talking about money, just because there are so many charlatans out there that they've caused people to think that that's all the church is after. They, they really, it's, it's all about money. And because of that, I've tried really to stay away from it from, for the most part. The fact of the matter is Jesus spoke more on the subject of money than he did about heaven and hell combined. He really did. He obviously wasn't afraid to talk about it. And uh, as a pastor, it falls my lot to do it. And so I'm going to talk to you about it tonight. And um, who knows what the Lord might do even in the midst of something like this. I, I've watched in services where men got up and taught on holiness and somebody get the Holy Ghost before it's over with. And uh, you just never know what the Lord is doing. And uh, we're going we're gonna to put our trust in Him. If you'll put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. I need the Lord's strength again tonight. I need His touch. Let's pray together, everyone. Lord.
Let's worship Him together, everyone. Let's praise Him together right now. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Tonight we are going to deal with the subject of tithing. And uh, I want to tell you, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how many people, including Christians, including apostolics, that have real misconceptions about this subject. I've even seen some that um, have tried to argue that it's not a New Testament practice. They say that because it's taken from the Old Testament, it has no bearing on us today. I want to start out tonight by just reminding you that it's not just the New Testament that was inspired by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now I want you to notice what it says here. All Scripture. All Scripture. And I would remind you that when Paul wrote this, there was not a New Testament that was canonized. So when he said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, he was speaking about the Old Testament. Now, the New International Version says it this way, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is useful for teaching. Paul said that in writing to a New Testament pastor. Hallelujah. And so we cannot ignore the importance of the Old Testament. In fact, I submit to you that any time the apostles preached, they had to preach from the Old Testament. They had nothing else to preach from. And so their only choice was to base their doctrine on Old Testament scriptures. I submit to you if we can't show the roots of our doctrine in the Old Testament, then our doctrine is most likely wrong. I can preach one God from the Old Testament. 
Now, I can preach it from the New Testament, but I can preach it from the Old Testament. There was not a more one God people on the face of the earth than God's chosen people, the Jews. And it was to them that the verse was given, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Well, hallelujah. They didn't believe in a trinity, and neither should we. Because it's not based in the Scripture. God didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He said, I'm the Lord, I change not. Well, praise God. Everything we believe is rooted in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou, that, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now, I want you to notice the beginning of verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of a heavenly things. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that when you look back at the Old Testament, it was all done with a grand design. It was done for our sakes. Now, I believe every word of the Old Testament. I believe these things actually happened. Praise God. When we, when we get to make this trip next year to Israel, one of the things that I've asked our tour guide to take us to see, I haven't been able to see in person yet, but I, I want to go and let you see the ruins of ancient Jericho. It's one of the most amazing archaeological finds in the world. Now the skeptics say it has nothing to do with the Bible. The amazing thing is every detail that was given in the book of Joshua is proven in the archaeological remains. It's all there. I don't want to get too sidetracked in all of this tonight, but here we go. Praise God. It's what I've been studying and spending my time on. So it's, you know, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, right? So this is what you get, unfortunately. But the amazing thing is what they found about Jericho. Jericho is built upon uh, one of the oldest cities that has ever existed. And so, uh, as I've explained to you before, they would go and build on top of it. So you end up with the Jericho of Joshua's day at the top of a hill. And at the very top of this hill was a mud brick wall that surrounded this city. You come down the hill a little ways and there is uh, more of the city at the base of that hill. And it too was surrounded by a mud brick wall. But then leading up to the mud brick wall there is a, a stone retaining wall that was built all the way around it. So this stone retaining wall I think went up some 40 feet. And then a mud brick wall that went up another 20 or 30 feet on top of the stone retaining wall. And, and what the archaeologists found when they started uncovering it was the mud bricks from both of the top layers had collapsed downward and outward and built a ramp that led to the top 
of the stone retaining wall. Now, that's interesting. Our King James Bible says that the walls uh, fell down flat. But that word flat in the original is, again, it's a poor translation. What, what it really means is the walls fell under themselves. And so that's exactly what happened is the wall above fell under the wall below which fell under the retaining wall and all of it together built this ramp that allowed, as the scripture plainly says, for every man to go into the city up. Straight forward before him. Read it. That's what it says. They all went up into the city and this ramp allowed them to scale this 40 foot wall. To go into the city. The next thing that the archaeologists found was that after the walls collapsed, the city was burned with fire. Which is exactly what the Bible tells us Joshua did. They also found huge vats of grain that was not plundered. Though they said the city obviously was overthrown by another force, it was not plundered. All the grain was left. Does anybody know what God commanded Joshua about Jericho? It was the first fruits. It was the first city. And he said, don't take anything out of it. Now, there is no conquering army that would conquer a city and leave the plunder. But the Bible says that's what Jericho did. And that's exactly what the archaeologists found. They also found there was one small section of the wall that had houses built against it that did not fall. Now, the interesting thing, the Bible talks about these spies that went to visit Rahab and that she let the cord out of, of her window and that they escaped out of the window. They went into the woods. They, they were there. Now, here's the interesting thing. This one wall that stands faces the, the, the wilderness. I, I'm just telling you, I believe every word of the Old Testament story. None of it is myth. None of it is made up. Every word of it was breathed by God. Well, hallelujah. And it all happened. Even though it's all happening for real, it happened to serve as a pattern for us. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Anybody believe that's us? Now Paul said everything that happened in the Old Testament was really written for our sakes. It happened. It took place. It's not an allegory. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. But God orchestrated every event because He knew there were things there that we needed to know today. And so we cannot throw the Old Testament out. Uh, another translation, 1 Corinthians 10 11 says, The things that happened to those people are examples. They were written down to teach us. Think about it, saints of God. When the apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and the people were saying, what meaneth this? Peter said, these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. What did he say next? 
This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. So on the day that the church was formed, Peter's first message to the church was from the Old Testament. Well, praise God. When the church began to have problems and there was a great division among them because Gentiles were being added and the Jews considered circumcision to be the only way that you could inherit the promises of God. Some of those Jews that had been converted wanted to add circumcision to the plan of salvation. And it created quite a stir within the church. And they had to call a general council and bring the apostles together and bring all the other pastors together. And they had to have a meeting. And you know how they resolved it? Let me read to you. This is Acts chapter 15 verses 13. Or actually Brother Goff's going to read it to you. Acts 15 verses 13 through 18. And after they had held their peace, James answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take them out, take out of them a people for his name. Uh-huh. And to this agree the words of the prophets. And to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written. As it is written. And after this I will return. After this I'll return. And we'll build again the tabernacle of David. And we'll build again David, the tabernacle of David. Which is fallen down. Which is fallen down. And I will build again the I'll ruins thereof. the ruins thereof. And I will set it up. set it up. That the residue, that the of, residue men of men might seek, might after, the seek Lord, after the Lord. And all the, and Gentiles, all the Gentiles. Upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord. Who doeth all now, these he's things. he's quoting from the Old Testament. And he finishes with this statement. Known unto God are all his works. works From the beginning of the the world. This is how wonderfully wise and intelligent our creator is. From the very beginning, God knew everything that was going to take place. And God put it all together. And God started orchestrating things from beginning to end. God was moving people around like players on a chessboard. God knew exactly what he was doing. He did it when it needed to be done. He said things through the prophets that they themselves did not even understand. I'm telling you, God was calling it. God declared the end from the beginning. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so we cannot throw out the Old Testament. Sunday morning I talked to you about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Do you remember how he fought the devil? He used the word. But what part of the word did he use? The written word, which was what? The Old Testament. When Jesus fought the devil, he quoted the Old Testament to him. When Philip met the Ethiopian in the desert, what was the, old, what, what was, what was the Ethiopian reading? The book of Isaiah. He was reading from the Old Testament. And, and Philip started right there and preached Jesus Christ to him. 
baptized him in Jesus' name and prayed him through to the Holy Ghost from the book of Isaiah. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you, we've got to understand our plan of salvation was declared in the Old Testament. Thank God for Acts 2.38. That makes it really clear. But I don't have to have Acts 2.38 to preach the necessity of water baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. I can preach it from Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form. That's somebody that doesn't have God in their life. It was void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. I'm telling you, that's a sinner. That's a backslider. But the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. There you go. There's baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And what happened as a result of the Spirit and the water moving on that void world was a brand new life that began to take place. Now, unfortunately for our denominal friends, You can't quite preach except the Lord is your personal Savior from Genesis chapter 1. It just doesn't quite fit into that picture. But Acts 2.38 fits very nicely. In fact, I could go from there and preach Acts 2.38 in in each book for a little while. Well, hallelujah. I can take you to the book of Exodus and preach Acts 2.38. Well, I can show you in the book of Exodus. Well, see, they get to the book of Exodus. They, 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 first of all, the last thing that happens when the, when the Israelites are in Egypt, the last plague that comes is the plague of death. So there's death and the application of the blood. What's the next thing that happens in their steps of deliverance? They go to the Red Sea. And the Spirit moves on the waters again. There's death or repentance. There's water or baptism. And there's the Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost. They get into the Sinai Peninsula and God says, build a tabernacle. And there's three very important pieces of furniture that we got to have in this building. First of all, before you ever get to the tabernacle, you got to stop by the altar where there's death and shedding of blood. And then when you leave the altar, you have to go to the laver. And you have to wash. In fact, God said, if you don't wash, you die. You can't bypass baptism. And then there was that Ark of the Covenant that was on the inside where the Spirit of God dwelt. We've got it again. Repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost. Forty years they wander in the wilderness. We get now to the book of Joshua. What happens when we get to the book of Joshua? It's time to cross over into Canaan's land. But God said, wait a minute. There's a covenant you haven't kept for the last 40 years. You're going to have to circumcise the, the males among you. There has to be shedding of blood. When they get through with that, the next thing that happens is they start across the Jordan River. 
and the Spirit of God meets them there and parts the waters and then they are in the land of promise. I've got it again. There is death, burial, resurrection. There is, there is repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Now, now look, you shouldn't be surprised by this. Because like I said, how do you think the apostles preached it? I mean, they, they can't come along and convert these Jews with some new doctrine that doesn't come from the Jewish scriptures. And you do know that for the first many years, the church was 100% Jewish. The 3,000 that were added on the day of Pentecost, they were Jews. Now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Isn't that what the book of Acts says? They were all Jews. All 3,000 of them were Jews. The 5,000 that were added next, all Jews. I mean, you've got to read through. Well, the closest we get to the Samaritans. That's another story for another day. Talking about the Samaritans and understanding all of that. Um, but, but the Samaritans uh, received it. But you don't get to the full-fledged Gentiles until Acts chapter 10. You've got to get through nine chapters of the book of Acts. A number of years that pass. Some 14 years, if memory serves me correctly, that pass before we get to this point where a Gentile is added. So for the first 14 years of the existence of the church, it's all Jews. How are they going to convert them with some new doctrine that they can't prove from the Jewish scriptures? Now, now listen to me, saints. The reason why I'm going through all of this is because we've got to first of all understand when people start saying, well, that's an Old Testament thing. That's their first mistake. We don't throw away the Old Testament. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Others want to destroy it. And say it has no impact. But Jesus said I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So we cannot discount what is in the Old Testament. We cannot discount even what is in the law. Now I only got a few amens there. But uh, <clears throat> it's true. Now, I didn't say that everything in the Jewish law is binding upon us today. I didn't say that. I said we can't discount the law. Many doctrines, as I said, every doctrine really that the apostles preached, they had some basis in the Old Testament. And there were things, there were some things about the law that were to serve as an example. There were other things about the law that were to be taken literally forever. 
And somehow we've got to be able to rightly divide the word of truth to know which is which. And that's what I want to help you do tonight. I want to show you that there are parts of the law that have never been done away with. In fact, I'll just, I'll just throw this out as a teaser. Do we still believe thou shalt not kill is expected of Christians today? We better believe that. In fact, it didn't get easier for us. Thou shalt not kill was the written law. But there's a spirit in that. Jesus didn't come along and say, I'm going to make this easier on you. The New Testament says, if you hate your brother without cause, you're a murderer. That's not making it easier. Because those Old Testament Jews could hate one another and keep the law. But Jesus said there's a spirit behind this. In fact, Jesus told them, said, you know the law says you can't commit adultery. He said, but I want to tell you that if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He's not making it easier. You understand? He didn't come to destroy it. The whole problem with the Old Testament law is that it was a written set of rules. And, and I, I don't have time to go. I'm not going to make it very far tonight at all. This may end up being a one-month series. I don't know. I'm not getting very far in my notes. But I'm enjoying myself. Um... We, we need to understand that, that when we look at the law, I, I lost my place. I don't know what I was saying. I was trying to say something there. And I know you guys don't remember. I'm not even going to ask and embarrass you. But what we've got to understand about the law is that the problem, this is where I was going, is this is another lesson for another day, but, but we really need to understand the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old covenant was a set of written laws. But the new covenant, also includes some written laws, but they're written in a different place. What the Lord said through the prophets was that the day is going to come, I'm going to issue a new covenant, and I am not going to write my laws on tables of stone, but on the fleshly tables of your hearts. Now that doesn't throw the law away. It just moves its placement. 
And this is what God wants. He wants to do something that makes our heart want to follow his laws. That's what the Jewish people lacked. They had a list of rules. But see, Deuteronomy 6, 4, most important verse of scripture to the Jews. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, most important verse to them. And Jesus said it was the most important verse in, in all of the Old Testament. He said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And that's the part they missed. Verse 5 is what they missed. They believed in one God. But loving that one God with all their heart. See, when you love Him with all your heart, then it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. When you love someone, you want to please them. When you really love someone with all your heart, you're willing to sacrifice your own pleasure in order to make them happy. Listen, this is the problem with today's society. This is the problem with today's society. Is everybody is looking out for themselves. And that's why nothing matters anymore. No relationship matters. The moment you stop pleasing me, I'm done. Look, I, I can go through a whole study on why there are so many churches. But let me just give you the short version. There's so many churches... Because everybody wants to find one that suits them. Well, didn't get a whole lot of response. But that's really the short version of it all. They all want to find something that's going to make them happy. Don't make me uncomfortable, preacher. Don't preach something that's going to cross my grain. Don't tell me where I'm doing wrong. Just let me feel good. The people need to make me happy. So I've talked about many times, you know, we have people move into Kansas City and I'll get phone calls and they say, what does your church have to offer me? Why would they even ask a question like that? The question ought to be, what does your church believe? How closely do you stick to the scriptures? Not what programs do you have. But see, everybody's looking for a relationship, whether it is a church relationship, a business relationship, an emotional relationship. Whatever it is, they want the relationship that will please them. I, you know, I'm way off track tonight. But maybe I'm not too far. 
you go back and look at history, and you see these things called arranged marriages, and I'm not advocating for that tonight, but I'm just telling you there's an amazing thing that you can find. Like it or don't like it, most of them stayed together in history. Boy, that got real quiet. I'm just telling you the facts. But you know why they stayed together? Because it wasn't a relationship based on what pleases me. They understood a sense of commitment. Okay, I've entered into this. I'm committed now. In fact, this was so strong in New Testament times. And really, from all I can tell, probably in Old Testament times as well. But I know it for a fact in New Testament times and can prove it in the life of Joseph and Mary. That even an engagement became a binding contract. The moment that they agreed to be engaged, the only way to end the engagement was a divorce. And to those Jews, divorce was only granted under certain circumstances. So once you're engaged... If neither party is guilty of sexual immorality, you don't get a divorce. You may learn things about one another you don't like. She may get on your last nerve. He may have the most annoying habits in the world. But once you say you're engaged, you're stuck, honey. I mean, that's the way it was. Because people understood commitment. Today, it's a foreign concept. Today, the only commitment that a lot of people have is a commitment to keep themselves happy. And that's why the minute that a preacher says something behind the pulpit that offends them, They're going to go find another congregation. Because now the church is not making me happy. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time to change. Please don't make me qualify everything I'm saying. I'm just telling you that we need to understand the one thing that really creates a sense of commitment is love. True love. I have watched couples that one of them maybe would even be in a a state of, of a coma. Not be able to respond. Or one of them so far gone into dementia they don't even know who their spouse is. But watch the other spouse go to their side day after day. Hold their hand. Talk to them. Tell them how much they love them. Now that spouse is getting zero out of that relationship. That's why you don't enter into marriage thinking, 
it's a give and take relationship. If that's the way you see it, at some point, you're going to start taking more than you're giving. Real love is give and give and give again. For God so loved that He gave. See, I, I often say that's the big difference between God and Allah. People say Allah is the same God. They just call Him by a different name. I beg to differ. Because Allah only wants to take. Allah wants you to go and take the life of the infidel. But God is not that way. God loved so much, He gave. He took on a robe of flesh, came to this world and died for us. He didn't ask us to kill for Him. Well, hallelujah. That's what real love does. And I'm telling you, when you fall in love with God, you start learning His ways. You start learning His laws. You start learning the things that make Him happy. It's not a matter of legalism. It's a matter of love. I do this because I love Him and I know this is what makes Him happy. I don't want to displease Him. That's not legalism. That's real love. And so we've got to understand, these people who want to throw away the Old Testament, the reason they do is because, number one, they don't really understand what the Old Testament's all about. And number two, it's because there's a lack of love. I love God enough that if He tells me there's something that displeases him then that's all I have to know I'll stop doing it not because he makes me not because there's a list of rules but because he said this makes me unhappy okay God I'm going to do my best to not make you unhappy now I'm human I'll fail at it somewhere along the way I'm going to do something I shouldn't have Thank God we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank God that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we don't just go and live in sin. We live a life that seeks to make Him happy. Now I know you say, what in the world has this got to do with tithing? Well, it's got a lot to do with it really. I may not get to it tonight, but it has a lot to do with it. All right, look, there is something else we need to know about the law. And I've taught this, those of you that have heard me teach it, you know, but please, for the sake of those who haven't heard, allow me tonight to explain, again, 
the apostle said we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Right? 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 Got to rightly divide it. And so a right division of the law shows us that there were really three aspects or areas to the law that Moses was given on Mount Sinai. There are three different aspects, three different categories or sets of laws. Because the Jewish people fit into three categories as a people. When they left Egypt, they were forming a brand new nation of people. Now, any nation has to have civil law. A nation with no civil laws is no nation. We've got civil laws. We've got laws on our books that govern how fast we can drive down the road. Right? We've got laws that determine um, what we can and cannot do to somebody else's property or person. These are civil laws that govern us as a nation. The Jews had to have a set of civil laws. Those civil laws dealt with crime and punishment. They dealt with how you care for the poor. They dealt with how you treat strangers and foreigners. These things were a part of the civil law. So when you're reading the law of Moses, you ask yourself, now is this dealing with crime and punishment? Is it dealing with widows and strangers? Is it dealing, you know, what, what is this law dealing with? The second area is that they were beginning a Jewish religion. That began at Mount Sinai. Now they'd, they'd been the people of God, and we're going to talk about that aspect in a moment, but, but now they're having a whole religious system set up that began at Mount Sinai. With Moses as their prophet, and Aaron as their priest. And, and so they had to have laws that governed the ceremonies that made up their Jewish religion. Things like animal sacrifices, dietary laws, holidays. All of these were part of their religious ceremony. All right? But then there's a third category of law that began long before Sinai. It was incorporated into the law of Moses, but it began before the law of Moses. And this involves morality. Because God has a sense of morality. And when He created us in His image, He put a sense of morality within us. He really did. These had been God's people long before they reached Mount Sinai. And there were certain things that were forbidden of them 
not because they were written in the law of Moses, because Moses hadn't even been born yet. But what was the, the first, now after the fall of Adam and Eve, which was breaking God's command, the first sin that was punished was what? Murder. Now, thou shalt not kill did not yet appear on the, ten, on the tables of stone when Cain killed Abel. And yet Cain was punished by God for committing murder. Because thou shalt not kill is not a part of a civil law. It's not a part of a ceremonial law. It's part of God's moral law. The protection of life involves God's sense of morality. This is why we're opposed to abortion. Because God's sense of morality is to protect life. Not take it. Think about Joseph. Now Joseph is 400 years before Moses. But when Potiphar's wife approached Joseph. Do you know what Joseph said? I cannot do this thing and sin against God. Wait a minute. Joseph said, adultery is a sin against God. 400 years before thou shalt not commit adultery was written on a table of stone. In fact, I can go back before that to the time of Abraham. And a man by the name of Abimelech has taken Abraham's wife. And God appears to him in a a dream and said, if you touch this woman, you're dead. And Abimelech said, I didn't know that this was that man's wife. I did it in the innocency of my heart. And God said, I know you did. Or else I would have killed you already. But I'm telling you, now that you know. Let me tell you something. Way back then, God had already established this sense of morality. That adultery is wrong. These things didn't come to be under Moses. Are you following me? These things existed before Moses. They were before the ceremonial or civil law. They are a part of God's moral nature. And that's why Calvary did not do away with the moral law. Because God's morality doesn't change. It was a sin to commit adultery way back under Abraham. It was a sin to commit adultery under Moses. It's still a sin to commit adultery under Christ. Because that's God's morality.
I, I could go on. I could go down the list. Lying, bearing false witness, began before Moses, continued under Moses, and continues under Christ. Because that has to do with God's moral nature. Hallelujah. And so what we have to understand is that we, as a church, we are not a part of the Jewish nation. So we don't follow that part of the law that was given to them for civil purposes. The way they took care of the poor and the widows, that's not what we are obligated to do today. All right? Um, the way that they were required to deal with crimes, sometimes by stoning. You say, why don't we do that today? Because that was their civil law. You know, isn't it interesting that even when Christ came along and they brought to him a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they asked him, the law says stone her. What are you going to do? He didn't, he did not contradict the law. But he knew that his answer would allow her to escape the punishment of the law. You remember how he answered? Let him that's without sin cast the first stone. That's pretty smart. Because one by one they had to drop their rocks and walk away. Because they knew there was not one of them that was sinless. In fact, I just got a feeling, knowing what I know about God, knowing what I know about the way His Spirit works, I just got a feeling, Brother Hilton, that the Holy Ghost brought to their minds at that very moment sins they themselves had committed. That's how conviction works. I've, I've preached things before and not even naming something specific and somebody come and say, why are you preaching to me? You just told on yourself. <laughs> the Spirit of God convicts. And I got a feeling in that crowd that day, the Holy Ghost was reminding them Probably that very day they lied. Look, probably somewhere in that crowd was the man. If she was caught in the act, that meant there was a man somewhere that was also caught in the act. But they weren't trying to stone him. He was probably there with a rock in his hand. I don't know. But I'm telling you, the sin of adultery has always been a sin. But the punishment fell under the civil law of the Jews. You understand? And we're not a part of the Jewish nation. Now, there are dietary rules. You can't eat pork. Well, I can't imagine life without bacon. 
I should have got a lot of amens on that one. I, I mean, I want bacon on my bacon. I, I, heard, I heard a man say one time, most likely, most likely the reason Jews could keep that prohibition against pork is because they didn't have any of their neighbors frying bacon in the morning. I did hear, I heard an archaeologist say that, that in their dig site they found almost all kosher animals, but they found a few pig bones. And he said, I've asked people to explain why did they find some pig bones. He said, somebody must have smelled some bacon somewhere. <laughs> there must have been at least one backslid Jew in the crowd. But the, the, the keeping of the dietary laws, no shrimp, no bacon, all these things that they couldn't eat. Why aren't we bound by that today? Because the dietary law had nothing to do with God's morality. It was a part of the religion they practiced. We don't practice the Jewish religion today. The holidays. Why don't we observe the Feast of Trumpets? Why don't we observe? The Passover. Why don't we observe the Feast of Tabernacles? Those things were a part of the Jewish ceremony. We're not in the Jewish religion. And I can tell you, each of them have a very great significance for the church. They were fulfilled. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Some of you weren't here the night I taught on Pentecost. This was during COVID. And I, uh, we were down in the basement having church. That No, when, what was it? The PA system was out or something. For some reason, we were down in the basement having church. I don't even remember why we did it. Was it COVID? We were painting up here. And we went downstairs to have church. And I taught on Pentecost that night. And, and I, I, I showed you how everything about Pentecost pointed to the church. So, again, we don't just throw it out because it's a part of their ceremony. There's some significance. And, and I actually heard a man go through and teach all of the unclean animals they couldn't eat. A man went through and talked about the significance of each of these animals and what it was about them that shows us something about our own uncleanness today. We, we don't avoid those foods, but there was significance for the church. But when it comes to God's morality, all right, my time's up. I didn't even get to. But when it comes to God's morality, those things are not types and shadows. Those things are reality. As I said, it was a sin to commit adultery. It's still a sin to commit adultery. It was a sin to tell a lie. It's still a sin to tell a lie. It was a sin to kill. It's still a sin to kill. It was a sin to steal. It's still a sin to steal. These things are a part of God's morality. Morality. 
and we are bound by the moral law. And so let me just, I, I'm, I don't have time to get into this. I'll have to come back and pick this up next week, Lord willing. But, but let me just tell you that if it's in the moral law, that never changes. And that's why there are some things we reach back into the Old Testament. Like Deuteronomy 22.5. We'll talk about that. I don't have time to get into that. Musicians come. i got to close. But, but there are things that we can pull out of the Old Testament. And the reason is when you see the Bible say that something is an abomination to God. That means God hates it. And if God hates it, that's a part of His morality. Now there were things that God told the Jews, this shall be an abomination to you, but He never said it's an abomination to me. You understand the difference? But when God says, such as witchcraft, God said that was an abomination to Him. So that's still a sin today. Homosexuality was an abomination to God. It's still a sin today. Once God declares it an abomination to Himself, that's why you can read through. And people do this. They'll, they'll go down to Deuteronomy 22. Well, you don't believe this verse of 22. You don't practice this verse of 22. But you choose this verse and you practice that. Yes, because that one verse alone in that chapter says, this is an abomination to the Lord thy God. That changes everything. Once God declares it an abomination, it's an abomination. And once God declares something holy, then that's something God loves. Because what did He say over and over again? Be ye holy, for I am holy. God's talking about His own nature. Those things which He says are holy to Him. That's where we get back to the subject of tithing. We read in our text, and I'm just going to throw this in, and then I've got to come back to all of this. But we read in our text that the Bible says that the tithe is holy unto the Lord. I'm going to show you in our next lesson, tithing did not start under Moses. Some forms of tithing did. But not all tithing. Tithing began before Moses. Hundreds of years before Moses. Well, hallelujah. And it was a part of God's morality. And therefore, it's something that is still holy unto God. Well, praise God. Let's stand tonight. I've taken way more time than I planned on the first two pages of my notes out of 12 if tonight's any indication we got six weeks of this ahead of us I'll try to pick up the pace hallelujah I want to please God I want God to be happy with what I do I love Him and I want His favor in my life 
I want His favor in my life. And as I'm going to prove to you in the next lesson or so, God always puts His favor on Titus. He just does. I'm telling you, He has blessed corporations that tithe. When, when the people at the head of that corporation were not even godly, but they practiced tithing, and God blessed the corporation as long as they did. And when they stopped doing it, things change. And I've watched God time and again put His blessing on sinners. I've seen sinners not living for God by any stretch of the imagination. Pay tithes and start receiving blessings from God as a result. Not that God's blessing the rest of their life, but He is blessing this one principle because this is holy to Him. And God honors it. That's what I'm looking for. I want to do things that God honors. I want to do things that make God smile. I want God to be pleased with the choices I make, the things that I do, and even the way I handle my finances. I want God to be happy. I want to live the way He wants me to live. I want to do the things He wants me to do. If that's the way you feel, why don't you slip your hands up tonight? Why don't you let Him know, God, I want to be pleasing to You. I want You to be happy with my life. I don't want to do anything that would displease you or bring your displeasure upon my life. Help me, God. Come on, let's talk to Him. Let's talk to Him. I want you to be pleased with me, Jesus. In everything, in every way, I want you to smile on me. Listen to me, saints. I long for the day that He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. But listen, God cannot lie. He's not going to say well done if we have not done well. He's not going to call us a good and faithful servant if we have not been good and faithful. I want to do well. I want to be good and faithful. And I want to serve Him with everything that's in me. Anybody else feel that way tonight?